Can you imagine anything more countercultural right now than someone to sit and really listen to another person through a book? You know, novels are a special form of literature because they are capable of deadly serious psychological and philosophical explorations of the human predicament. And I think what happens when you lose a culture of reading, everything becomes ephemeral and everything is forgotten very, very quickly. We know that the people who are leading are the good communicators and communication is mastery of language. The beauty about reading though, is it begins to chisel away at that stone that blocks the cave door. Welcome to Reading in the Common Good. This is the final episode in our series where we discuss the enriching and humanizing activity of reading deeply and well. We encourage you to put the ideas discussed in today's conversation into practice by hosting your own reading group. Check out ttf.org slash book club for help getting started. In today's episode, Trinity Forum President Cherie Harder will speak with Trinity Forum Senior Fellow Dana Joya about the place of poetry in our lives, in our culture, and in our education. This episode is an edited version of an evening conversation, which you can find in full on our website. Here's Cherie Harder introducing Dana Joya. Dana Joya is both a renowned poet and a rather unusual one, and that he's also served as a marketing executive, a literary critic and essayist, as well as the head of a federal agency. Rarely do you find a corporate executive and a federal bureaucrat who is also a poet. Dana is currently the Poet Laureate of California. He has five full collections of poetry, including Daily Horoscope, Gods of Winter, which won the 1992 Poets Prize, Interrogations at Noon, which won the 2002 National Book Award, Pity the Beautiful, and his latest 99 poems. And in 2014, he won the Aiken Taylor Award for Lifetime Achievement in American Poetry. So Dana, welcome. How did you become a poet? I fell in love with poetry as a kid because my mother, who, you know, working class Mexican woman who didn't have much education, loved poetry. She had gone to school in those evil, repressive days when school children were required to memorize great poems. And th- these were obviously extraordinarily valuable things in her, in her life, and she used to simply recite them. I mean, so, you know, she would, you know, be in the kitchen doing dishes, and she would go, it was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabel Lee. And so I, I fell in love with the, the bewitchment of poetry, the magic of poetry at a fairly early age, though it never occurred to me that I would be a poet. That happened when I was about 19 or 20, and then I had a problem. Um, I had very good parents, but they neglected to give me the private income I so richly deserved. Uh, I'm sure none of you have faced this indignity. And uh, moreover, I was the oldest kid in a big family that had no money. And so it was required that I be practical. And that eventually led me to probably be the only person in human history who went to Stanford Business School to be a poet. You've been a frequent proponent of poetry recitation. You started the Poetry Out Loud contest. Why is it so important for us to speak and hear poetry rather than merely read it? Most people think they don't like poetry. Most Americans believe they don't like poetry. But if they hear a good poem, well-spoken, they like it. 
And the reason is I think they don't like studying poetry as a kind of analytical art. And we've lost touch with the essential uh, element of poetry, which is its orality. Poetry is the oldest art that's still practiced by humanity. It goes back to a time that's prehistorical. Uh, poetry existed before there was writing and any other way to preserve uh, the past traditions, uh, the history of, of, of a people. And so things that mattered were put into a form that was moving and memorable, which is to say that it was put into me to meters. Uh, and those allowed people to remember them. Uh, Robert Frost defined poetry uh, as, you know, once as a way of remembering what it would impoverish us to forget. And so poetry was at the center of a culture, but it was a performative art. It was essentially the same art as song. And I think that as poetry has moved away from that, it touches people less directly. And so we're in a culture right now where there's a small group of intellectuals which likes poetry a great deal, often because they're paid to profess it. Uh, but most people feel slightly alienated it. But I'm, I'm very old fashioned, I believe that, that art answers needs in people's lives. Oscar Wilde once said, uh, man hungers for beauty, there is a void. And poetry is one of the things, in a sense, that feeds that appetite. And it does it most naturally as a form of musical speech. One of the themes that seems to come up repeatedly in your poems, uh, across the collections really, is both the power of words, but also silence, what is left unsaid. Why do you keep returning to this theme so often in your poems? I think you literally have poems entitled, Unsaid. If you're a poet, you're working with words, you're working with language. And if you're at all truthful, you understand to a certain degree what can be said in words and what is beyond the power of words to, uh, to express. Words can imply it, but they can't express it quite literally. And I think also, you know, if, if you are a person of faith, if you are a person who prays, a person who has an inner life, you're aware of the profound uh, nature of your silences. You know, those things which are felt, that are intuited, that are imagined, that are remembered, that are never fully articulated. And, you know, uh, and, and, I, and so I think that what you're doing as a poet is to do everything you can with words without denying what lays beyond words. Let's talk a little bit about the purpose of poetry. At one point in one of your essays, you said that one of the purposes of poetry is to purify the language. What did you mean by that? Well, that's not my idea. Stéphane Mallarmé, the great French symbolist poet, wrote a poem about Edgar Allan Poe because you know Poe was rather ignored in the United States, but the French treated him as a god. He was the you know basically the the founding figure of symbolism, and he said that poetry and he was using it embodied in Poe purified the language of the tribe, which I think he meant. You know, words are misused. You know, uh, words are inflated. They're forgotten. And one of the purposes of poetry is to use words in the fullness of their meaning and in the trueness of their meaning. And it's a kind of, it's a sacred responsibility of poets. We tend to think of language as an intellectual thing, but a language is a way that one human speaks to another in the fullness of their humanity. 
uh, and it speaks intellectually, emotionally, it speaks to memories, and that's what a poet does. A poet is gonna use, make two plus two equal eight, because you're using words in the fullness of their meaning, both of what is being said and what is unsaid, what is implied what is suggested, what you yourself as the reader supplies. The older I get, the more I think that as a poet, I'm writing only part of a poem. It needs to be completed by the reader. And if I cannot bring the reader in as an equal and as a collaborator, I have failed as a poet. Now, presumably there is a public, even a political component to that as well. I think it was George Orwell who said that political chaos is connected with the decay of language. Does it mean that the decline of poetry is somehow responsible for the mess that we're in? <laughs> I don't think you can blame that on poetry alone. Uh, we're in an election year, and it doesn't matter who's running. Uh, you hear lang you'll always hear language misused in an election year. You'll hear it misused in public speech. But you don't have to go to politics. You can go to marketing. You can go to education. You can go to any kind of institutional life. Every institution has a way of saying things which are not entirely true. You know, it's the, the politics of that institution. Poetry, like any art, can be misused. But I think at the, at the base of a poet's responsibility is to use truth language truthfully and powerfully to express that person's vision of reality powerfully. If you think of the society that we are in at the moment, to be able for an individual to register his or her individual experience in a responsible way truthfully has an astonishing cultural power because what we're both mostly hearing is corporate language, political language, uh, group language, which has been distorted to a greater or lesser degree you know, for the political concerns of that group, you know, that institution. In your seminal Atlantic Monthly article, you trace some of the reasons why poetry has become so marginalized over the half century. Uh, you pointed out the fairly prominent cultural role that poetry has played through the first couple hundred years of our, our country. Why has poetry become uh, so much relegated to the margins uh, of the cultural arena? Well, there's a, lot of, there's a number of usually big historical changes don't happen from one thing. It's usually several things coming together. I'll start with one that people never talk about. For thousands of years, poetry was badly taught. Consequently, everyone loved it. You know, it was used to teach history. It was used to teach elocution. You know, you had people reciting chorally as a kind of communal experience. You had all of these things, and it was people were allowed to enjoy it. To their knowledge of poetry was largely experiential. About 90 years ago, a group of brilliant Southerners came in and taught us for the first time how to see poetry accurately. They're the new critics, and it's been all been downhill since then, because uh, you know poetry has essentially become a text on which to make analytical constructions. So I think the the way poetry has been taught. Uh, has contributed to its decline. The fact that poetry has been institutionalized in creative writing programs. So you have these small professional groups, and I think it's a larger problem in terms of American society. Right now we have people, intellectuals, academics, they're brilliant at learning how to talk to one another, but they have collectively lost their ability to talk to the rest of society. Not entirely, but to a greater or lesser degree. I think this is bad for academics, and I think it's bad for society. Because I think society's 
intellectual, cultural health depends very much on a very lively sort of conversation, a kind of series of arguments and dialectics. And the more uh, voices that can contribute in a way truthfully, in a kind of, you know, accurately, the more powerful uh, culture is. And instead, we've got a very bland, professional dialogue about poetry. For example, you almost never see an academic give a bad review to a book of poetry because that person may be on your next promotion committee, your next grant committee, they may be on a prize committee. You know, so it's professional courtesy. And I think professional courtesy is the death of an art form. One of the few places you, where you would think many Americans would be regularly exposed to poetry is in the Bible. Uh, close readers of the Bible know that the Psalms, uh, many of the books, are in the medium of poetry. And you would think this might have cultivated a familiarity and an affection for poetry among close readers of the Bible. But this doesn't seem to be the case. Any ideas why that might be? You know, once again, I think that if you go, you know, I don't think even Christians read the Bible enough. Uh, they read certain passages, they tend to read glosses on it, but going, actually going back and rereading the whole book of Job, you know, you know, rereading the prophetic books. All the prophetic books are written uh, in verse, and so they, don't have, they have less experience. People have less experience of memorizing and reciting uh, you know, those poems. I think that they're read less and less, even in services. We have a culture where everything's mediated. You know, so you read a book about reading the Bible rather than reading the Bible. You read a book about reading poetry, it's criticism, rather than reading the primary texts. And it's good, I mean, it's, I'm not you know, denying the power of commentary, of criticism, but it's no substitute for the primary experience of reading uh, great works, and dare I say the, the Bible is the greatest of the great works. You mentioned audiences. I think it was Walt Whitman who said that to have great poets, you need great audiences. What makes an audience great? And what guidance would you give to potential audience members out there? Well, let me start by saying that I seem to be in a minority to believe that an art without an audience is a diminished thing. Uh, I don't, that's not the same as saying you've got to take your, your art and bring it down to the dumbest possible uh, level. But you know, think of somebody like Bob Dylan. Think of Bob Dylan's career. He's had a conversation, a dialectic with his audience you know, over half a century now, and that has been important to him as an artist and to the audience. I think audience members are, are most passionate when they feel they're engaged uh, in a sense, you know, with a kind of a larger cultural exchange. So I think that, that art, be it the most difficult hermetic art or popular art, always takes into account the odd fact that somewhere along the line, another human being is going to encounter your work. And they were, are, these people are either going to engage with it or not. You know, I, I don't think that Mozart would have disagreed with this or Shakespeare would have disagreed with this. They were people that respected their audience. I think the problem a lot of times with a lot of artists is we do not respect our, our readers as equals. We you know, do not, in a sense, say, you, you know, for a poet, if a poem is any good, the, the people in this audience say, everybody here has brought a different life into this room. A poem that's good is gonna have room for everybody to come in it in some way and maybe do different things, but have a different kind of response. So, so to have you know, great art, you've gotta have a room big enough for a great audience. And, and, and I just think that's common sense, common cultural sense, common educational sense. Poetry's power 
presumably lies not just in our ability to hear it, but our ability to read it. But while you were the chairman of the NEA, one of the things that you instigated was one of the largest studies that the country had ever done on the state of reading in America. And the results that you gathered were really quite depressing, which found that reading as a whole was in decline, reading literature and poetry was in particular decline, reading comprehension was in decline. Given that this has been the state of reading in America, which has only accelerated since you left office, how, what does that say for the future of poetry? Well, let me summarize. You know, uh, you know, you know. I uh, had to bring these results to Congress, so I had to keep it simple. Um, you know, the uh, so the the this the, the, the elaborate hundreds of pages of tables can be summed up in three sentences: Americans are reading less, especially younger Americans. Two, which means that Americans are reading less well. Younger you are, the less well. And that reading less and reading less well have important consequences in the lives of individuals economically, educationally, civically, and socially. Um, and, we, and we could demonstrate this through, I mean, literally about 40 hard statistical studies. Uh, I mean, the first thing you do about this is you lament, you know, you pull your hair, you weep, and then the second thing you do is do something positive. Uh, we created this program called the Big Read. Uh, it was, we started it quickly, we moved it quickly, uh, we had it in every state in the country, and really by the time we left, we had 25,000 organizations working with us in partnership, and guess what happened? Uh, for the first time in al almost three decades, of steady decline in reading, reading, adult reading went up in the United States. Adult, we measure adult because that's when you're out of school, 18 and plus. And what that says is that you can change the trends that are affecting this country. Uh, the program has been backed off of, some other programs that were similar have been backed off of, and this, the numbers have fallen down again. I, I think it's very simple. Reading is a transformative, individual and social act. Communities of people who, who can read and read well perform better uh, than those that don't. It has important consequences if we do not find ways to support and perpetuate the power of reading, uh, America is gonna suffer. Not simply you know, uh, culturally, but civically. People who read vote more, They've, they do volunteer work, you know, vastly higher levels. They, do, uh, they, they give to charities at more level. More surprisingly, readers even exercise more than non-readers. I mean, so, you know, uh, so, and guess what? Uh, is there anybody in this room who doesn't know, in a sense, from their spiritual life, the transformation that occurs through reading? And th that's what we're trying to, you know, to, to, to perpetuate, because I, I think it's really at the core of a free society. Before we hear some of your poems, close readers of your poetry will notice that certain themes keep coming up, which may be unusual among modern poetry, including sin, redemption, grace, and other themes. Has your faith affected your poetry? I'm a cradle Catholic. Um, I went to, you know, eight years with the Sisters of Providence, four years with the Marianists, you know, I, I go to mass. Uh, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Catholic you know, down to the tips of my toes. 
the funny thing is that most of my poetry is not in any overt sense religious, but you know, you reflect your worldview. And my worldview is, is that we live in a fallen world. Uh, we are faced with our imperfections. Uh, we long to transcend this. We, uh, we ask for grace and hope for redemption. The funny thing is I would write these narratives and I would think of them, it's about a murderer, it's about a, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, a person who's, you know, perishing thing. And then about a year later, I'd read it and I'd say, that's, that is such a Catholic allegory, you know, but it's, you know, it's operating at a subconscious level, which I think is good. I think it's very hard. Uh, and maybe people disagree with me in this. I think it's very hard to write poetry using the language of faith. Because the, you know, the language is sort of received language. It's communal language. And I think what we have to do is, you know, if, you're, if you're writing about these mysteries, the mysteries of our existence, you know, what we have to do is, in a sense, reinvent the experience from the ground up you know, uh, you know, with the vividness of something you're discovering for the first time. And uh, that's what one tries to do. It's kind of hard. Mm-hmm. Perhaps you could share some of those poems with us. If you insist. Uh, <laughs> so let's, I've got something. I'm from a town called Hawthorne, California. Uh, it, who knows Hawthorne here? I got a couple of people, you know. I mean, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's a really rough working class urban neighborhood. There's about two trees in the entire uh, city, city you know, boundaries. And so I never, my, my parents always had two jobs and stuff, so we never took vacations. So I never saw nature until I was uh, 18. Uh, I went off to college and suddenly I was in Stanford and there was nature around me. And this is about the first time I ever really experienced a spring. I was with uh, a a young lady that I was in love with. uh, um, Unsuccessfully, I guess would be the right word to use. Uh, And, and, you know, it's about going in this uh, apple farm. Actually, ironically, it's, it's... right around where I live now in Sonoma County. Uh, it's a love poem, but as a, a, a friend of mine said, Dana, when you write a, a poem about a, a young man and a woman uh, in a garden with an apple, it's about something else too. Uh, it's called The Apple Orchard. And it, this is written years later and addressed to this woman, who I'm sure doesn't even remember this experience. The Apple Orchard. You won't remember it. The apple orchard we wandered through one April afternoon, climbing the hill behind the empty farm. A city boy, I'd never seen a grove burst in full flower or breathe the bitter sweet perfume of blossoms mingled with the dust. A quarter mile of trees and fragrant rose arching above us, we walked the aisle alone in spring's ephemeral cathedral. We had the luck, if you can call it that, of having been in love, but never lovers, the bright flame burning, fed by pure desire. Nothing consumed, such secrets brought to light. There was a moment when I stood behind you, reached out to spin you toward me, But I stopped. What more could I have wanted from that day? Everything, of course. Perhaps that was the point, to learn that what we will not grasp 
is lost. Um, there's a, a type of, of statue, a religious statue in uh, southwestern United States. It's, it's it was carved out of wood, usually by a local artisan. They're called santos, Santa. The, it's the virgins, the saints. Um, and they were used for either home altars or small rural churches. This is a poem uh, spoken by a santo. Uh, the santo is a Mexican statue. And it's been damaged in the Mexican Revolution when the troops came and, and basically, you know, the Catholic Church was, was, was outlawed. And it's now in a museum. And this is a poem about the difference between a work of art that's created for uh, devotion that is then transferred into a situation where it's for aesthetic contemplation. And indeed, this is most of the, of the, con you know, of the contents of, of museums are this way. It's called The Angel with the Broken Wing. I am the angel with the broken wing, the one large statue in this quiet room. The staff finds me too fierce, and so they shut faith's ardor in this air-conditioned tomb. The docents praise my elegant design above the chatter of the gallery. Perhaps I am a masterpiece of sorts, the perfect emblem of futility. Mendoza carved me for a country church. His name's forgotten now, except by me. I stood beside the gilded altar where the hopeless offered God their misery. I heard their women whispering at my feet, prayers for the lost, the dying, and the dead. Their candles stretched my shadows up the wall, and I became the hungers that they fed. I lost my left wing in the revolution. Even a saint can savor irony when troops were sent to vandalize the chapel. They hit me once, almost apologetically, for even the godless feel something in a church, a twinge of hope, fear, who knows what it is, a trembling unaccounted by their laws, an ancient memory that they can't dismiss. There is so much I must tell God. The howling of the damned won't reach so high, but I stand here like a dead thing nailed to a perch, a crippled saint against a painted sky. Uh, and now this is a poem in free verse, just to say, show you how, the, you know, I think one of the ways you can use free verse, which still has a kind of musicality, this is a Washington poem. It's called Money. Uh, <laughs> Money, the long green, cash, stash, rhino, jack, or just plain dough. To be made of it, to have it to burn, greenbacks, double eagles, megabucks, or Ginny Mays. It greases the palm, feathers the nest, holds heads above water, makes both ends meet. Money breeds money, gathering interest, compounding daily, always in circulation. Money, you don't know where it's been, but you put it where your mouth is, and it talks. Uh, the, uh, uh, now, I, I want to talk about something. Being a poet is a very odd 
business in a lot of ways, uh, if you can even call it a business. Uh, and you learn certain things that um, poets don't usually admit. And uh, one of the things that I've learned, uh, and I think that you sort of, as a reader, you might already know this, which is that you, if you write a poem, to a certain degree, you're creating a construction of language that has a life of its own. And it's kind of like your kids, when it's ready, it moves away, and it does all kinds of things you may or may not approve of. Uh, you know, but it has this kind of thing. And so what I've discovered is that my poems have a meaning, sometimes which I did not intend, but which is there. And that is actually a sign of their strength rather than of you know, uh, my weakness, or at least I'd like to believe that. Uh, and I, I want to give you this example. Uh, I wrote a poem, and it, it's, it's called Reunion. And it's about this notion of coming to a place where you should know everybody, but you really don't. You know, and, and, you know, and it's like, and you just, you realize how, you know, especially in a big society like ours, how much of a stranger you are, even in your own hometown or your own school. And I wrote this poem, and I sent it to this editor and who had wanted a poem. And he says, oh, Dana, this is my favorite kind of your poem. It's one of your Twilight Zone poems, you know? And it's, you know, and it's very much like, an, you know, an experience of the Twilight Zones. And I... I consider that a great compliment. Uh, you know, Rod Serling is one of my heroes. A uh, number of years later, it came out in a book, and I went to a reading, and there was a woman that I'd known as an undergraduate, and she came to the reading, and she had a copy of the poem framed. And she said, look at this, and I said, wow. Then she turned it around, and there was a picture of her father. And she said, you know, my father has Alzheimer's, and you gave me the poem that by which I understand how he feels. And I realized she was right. Reunion. This is my past where no one knows me. These are my friends whom I can't name. Here in a field where no one chose me, the face is different, the voice is the same. Why does the stranger rise to greet me? What is the joke that makes him smile as he calls his children together to meet me, bringing them forward in single file? I nod, pretending to recognize them, not knowing exactly what I should say. Why does my presence seem to surprise them? Who is the woman who turns away? Is this my home or an illusion the bread on the table smells achingly real. Must I at last solve my confusion? Or is confusion all I can feel? Uh, this is a, a short poem. It's a, my wife and I lost our first son at uh, four months of sudden infant death syndrome. And, you know, uh, I don't, I mean, there's probably someone in this audience who's lost a child, but if not, you understand it just changes your life. And I don't want to talk about the process of loss. I want to talk about something that's sort of odd that happens thereafter, which is that ever thereafter, whenever you see a child who would be about the same age as your child, you say, that's what my boy would be doing. That's what my son would look like now. And so your child has a kind of phantom second existence. Uh, and this is about that. And I wrote this poem on what would have been my son's 21st birthday. 
and it's called majority, you know, in that legal sense. Now you'd be three, I said to myself, seeing a child born the same summer as you. Now you'd be six or seven or 10. I watched you grow in foreign bodies, leaping into a pool, all laughter, or frowning over a keyboard, but mostly just standing, taller each time. How splendid your most mundane actions seemed in these joyful proxies. I often held back tears. Now you are 21. Finally, it makes sense that you have moved away into your own afterlife. I'll end with the most recent poem in the book. I think one of the hardest subjects to write about is a happy marriage. And it's because, first of all, it's always easier to write about the dark emotions or the dramatic emotions, but also a marriage has a kind of strange private quality. In a marriage, you begin, your wife and you, you know, or your spouse and you begin to, in a sense, create a private language, jokes, allusions that only you understand, nonverbal signals. I know immediately at 50 feet when my wife disapproves of something, you know? <laughs> Knowing that is one of the reasons I've been married 36 years. And so I was trying to, dis, to, to do this, and, and the metaphor I came up with is you think of these vanishing tribes, they only have maybe two or three speakers, and when they go, their language goes, their myths, their customs. And this struck me as a kind of metaphor for this, this private world that exists between the two of you. Marriage of many years. Most of what happens, happens beyond words. The lexicon of lip and fingertip defies translation into common speech. I recognize the musk of your dark hair. It always thrills me, though I can't describe it. My finger on your thigh does not touch skin. It touches your skin, warming to my touch. You are a language I have learned by heart. This intimate patois will vanish with us. It's only native speakers. Does it matter? Our tribal chants, our dances round the fire, performed the sorcery we most required. They bound us in a spell time cannot break. Let the young vaunt their ecstasy. We keep our tribe of two in solemn secrecy. What must be lost was never lost on us. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Reading in the Common Good, a podcast from the Trinity Forum. Be sure to subscribe to the Trinity Forum conversation so you won't miss any new episodes. And while this conversation with Dana Joya marks the end of our series on reading in the common good, we'll have a new series out soon. In the meantime, listen back to our past conversations on Lenten spiritual practices, 
the relationship of faith to science, and much more. And if you're looking for ways to build deeper community by discussing great Christian writing, go to ttf.org slash book club and learn about how to start your own Trinity Forum book group.